This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues from the perspective of the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Ramin Gillette a 25-year-old Baha'i youth who grew up in Africa in the country of Cameroon and came to the United States for university and lost his way. His story describes the struggle he went through and the reward of finding his calling. He also describes his recent service trip to Rwanda with the service corps organization called the Orion Aid Foundation. I started the interview by asking Ramin what it was like growing up in Cameroon. Well, I grew up in... I grew up in Cameroon, uh, which is a country in West Africa, and uh, it's always a, whenever someone asks me, well, how is it growing up there, it's always hard for me to answer because for me it was home, it wasn't, it wasn't a strange experience, it was, of course everyone's childhood is unique, and mine was I didn't feel mine was at the time it was just normal you know I grew up with um, most of the time I was the minority the minority white child and my parents sent me to local schools so I was always the, the you know the, <clears throat> the one white kid in in the class and that's I don't know it's um but I, I didn't really. It wasn't for me an issue, you know. I for a long time, for many years, I uh, did not realize that there was this difference between me and uh, uh, other children. Until I think my mother told me this story when I came home one day. I was, uh, I, sh- I think I was around eight, mm-hmm. and uh, I was looking in the mirror, and she asked me, "Well, why? I mean, why are you looking in the mirror?" And I, um, I kind of looked at I looked over at her and I said, well, you know, I think they're right. I am different, you know, and I I guess that was the first time I really thought about it, but mm-hmm. it was never really an issue. It was, you know, it felt like home and, yeah. So you felt included <clears throat> by all the kids? Yeah, the African kids. yeah. There was never, I mean, some t- because there was that familiarity with you. Mm-hmm. You know, they grew up with you. They, they kind of knew you. But when they're, you know, kids that did not really know you they were kind of fascinated to see you and they would like to touch your hair and mm. just because you were kind of uh something they they haven't someone said you know they don't really see a lot of white people so mm-hmm. yeah, and i grew up in a town mm-hmm. and it w- yeah what were the circumstances? I mean, first of all, what's what's your ethnicity, and what was the circumstances that you ended up being a white child in <laughs> in uh, Cameroon? 
Well, my um, my dad is American, and my mom is Iraqi and Iranian, which makes that a little interesting. Um, but my dad had been living in Cameron for a year. In the seventies, uh, he had he had gone to Cameron to do service as a Baha'i and. Being there, he I think he, he that's where he met my mom, and she had come for a I think she had come for a conference, and that's where they met, and mm-hmm. they fell in love, and I guess uh, they they really liked it there, and they decided to live there and produce children. <laughs> so you're part Iraqi and part <coughs> uh, Iranian and part uh, American. American. Yeah, it's interesting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All these countries have had a lot of conflict between them. <laughs> yeah. And living in Cameroon. And living in Cameroon, right. Mm-hmm. I interviewed your father, and he mentioned that the class sizes are very big in oh, yeah. school. Yeah. I guess it, because Africa, there's just a lot of children. Mm-hmm. You know, well, they have a huge children population. Mm-hmm. And they, I don't, they don't, usually they don't have enough schools to keep up with all the children. So mm-hmm. usually there are, there are a lot of children. So how many kids do you, did you typically have in your class? Uh, when I was younger, I went to um, a public school, and these classes were usually pretty big, with like 80, 80 children. Mm-hmm. And then um, when, when I was older, they sent me to a private, a Catholic school, which was private, and uh, the classes were smaller, between forty and fifty, mm-hmm. and on, on average, mm-hmm. and yeah. And the makeup of the class was different as well, or no? It, uh, I think there was a little more diversity. Um, th- I had a lot of friends who were who were, who were mixed, mm-hmm. interracially mixed mm-hmm. parents, and um, and there were a few. I think there, there, there was one other, another friend of mine. He was Persian, mm-hmm. and he came. He went to the same school I did. So I can imagine a class with eighty kids could be pretty chaotic. <laughs> Do you remember that at all, or? Yeah, it, it, was, like it was it was chaotic, and and the teachers were a li- very strict, mm-hmm. you know, very very strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, different, they have very different discipline than than here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay over there to to um, I guess punish in a I guess beat students. Mm-hmm. You know, it's different, and there are different expectations mm-hmm. of teachers, and that's what they did there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To keep order. To keep order. That's right. So, were you ever subjected to such punishment? Yeah, a few times actually, yeah. and uh, yeah, and uh, it was just normal, you know. And mm-hmm. and I knew my um, parents would have a problem with it, so I mm-hmm. tried not to make an issue out of it. And mm-hmm. I told my mother one time that they, that's what the they, the teacher had been had beaten me, mm-hmm. and uh, I told her not to make an issue. I didn't want to feel like. Um, feel like I was special mm-hmm. in some way you mm-hmm. know I wanted to be treated the same mm-hmm. you know like the others not so I told her not to make an issue out of it but she did <laughs> um, what were the circumstances of being punished yeah what did you do and what did the and what was the punishment oh I think what was it it was uh, I think I had uh, I ha- might have not done my homework or you know they would punish you for really sometimes it was really silly things it was like um, 
your your desk wasn't in the right um, place in relation to the ne- next desk, desk. It wasn't you know it wasn't there wasn't order in the desks, mm-hmm. and they wanted order. And especially this one teacher, he was just a little cruel. And uh, yeah, I think it was one of those things. And and uh, I think he used a cane and uh, beat me on my hands. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, it seems a little, I guess it was normal, you know, because I'd seen like people get beaten like on a daily basis and over here, whereas I, I think if that happened here, it would be, you know, you would consider it, oh, that's really, really bad. But mm-hmm. at the time it was, I didn't really consider, it wasn't like, um, something so different mm-hmm. for me. So then the class, I, I suppose, was pretty orderly then. Usually, when the te- you know, it's so chaotic when the teacher is out of the classroom, mm-hmm. and then they walk in, everything like suddenly like becomes quiet, mm-hmm. like really quickly. And, and he teaches one subject to all eighty kids. Yeah, I think usually, when I, in the younger, um, when I, in the because they have primary school and secondary school, which follows the British system, in the primary school. Yeah, that that was more of how it was. You'd have one teacher um for most of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he yeah, teaching one subject. Right. It's teaching actually teaching many subjects. Okay. Yeah. To the, to the 80 kids. To the 80 children. So that there wasn't any division right. dividing up of the class. Yeah, we wouldn't yeah, we wouldn't really like we would stay in the same class, same children mm-hmm. the whole day. So, was the classroom cramped? Uh or was there enough room for 80 kids? <laughs> It was pretty cramped. Yeah. Um, the classes were, because you you know you didn't have individual desks per, for each student. No. You'd have a, it's like a, it's a longer desk, mm-hmm. and maybe three or four students like fit on it. Okay. And uh, so you're sitting, you know, on this wooden b- desk next to, uh, you know, maybe three other, two or three other children. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was kind of cramped. Okay. <laughs> And you went to Catholic school at what age? Um, I was, let's see, I think I was around 12. Yeah, 12. So after elementary school? Yeah, after, yeah, after the primary. Primary school. Primary school. And And you you stayed in that school until you graduated from high school or what? um, I stayed there for five years Mm -hmm. and I got... It was a Catholic school, and I was. It was a mostly a boarding school, but I, I was one of the few students that commuted to it daily, mm-hmm. um, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, after five years, I, I really wanted to try something else, mm. and uh, and I <coughs> persuaded my parents to do, uh, to have me do uh, correspondence courses mm. through uh, the University of Nebraska. So I did that for two years. And it was really different, uh, stay, you know, studying at home. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I learned a lot about American literature which and American history. Which you didn't wh- get so much. Which I didn't get so much before, and which I really, Amer- especially American literature, I, be- I really loved it. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned a lot of more of the artistic mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. So you grew up as a Baha'i? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that was my background. My parents, um, my dad became a Baha'i when he was 
in college and mm-hmm. my mom was raised in a Baha'i home and mm-hmm. I was they were both Baha'i so I was raised in a Baha'i environment mm-hmm. and you lived in Bamenda all your life or yeah actually in this town in the I guess the mountainous region of the country and, mm-hmm. and uh, lived in the same house for most of my life mm-hmm. yeah was the was the people of Bamenda unique in any way? They spoke English, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the, a smaller portion of the country speaks English. Mm-hmm. And so, as that's um, many people ask, you know, when I say I'm from Cameroon, they assume I speak French. Mm. But um, and how is your French? It's okay. It's yeah. Uh, so you could communicate in French if, if you had. Yeah, to. when w- not, I learned French in school because y- the country is bilingual. Mm-hmm. So some parts, you know, where we grew up, we had to speak English. Mm-hmm. And then if you travel maybe five hours, then it's all French, and mm-hmm. you would have to speak French mm-hmm. to communicate. But uh, but I never, you know, whenever we traveled, we would travel. Whenever we went to the French-speaking side, we we always had friends who spoke English. So I never really had an opportunity to to focus on my French, except in school. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So how many languages do you know then? Spoken languages. I, I, uh, I, I studied more French in college. Mm-hmm. In fact, next semester I'm taking a French class, French speaking class. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I can hold a conversation in French, mm-hmm. and Persian I learned from my mother, mm-hmm. and English of course, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So of those three, English is what you would say yeah. is your most fluent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say so. Your natural yeah. language. Right. Yeah. So you were talking about this correspondence school. Um, how did you find this correspondence school? It was it was very different for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never... Most of my classes before had leaned towards the sciences. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't taken a lot of literature classes and... And if I did, I did actually take literature classes before, but they were British. It was all British literature, mm-hmm. reading Charles Dickens, and uh, and Af- also African authors. Mm-hmm. But um, but this the 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 uh, correspondence courses. So well, a few of them were delved into American literature, mm-hmm. like um, <clears throat> like prior to the revolution. And I really fell in love with Hawthorne mm. and um, Mark Twain, mm. and yeah. So it was, and then I w- I was writing more, so mm. yeah. So mm. it brought out more of my artistic side. So the the course encouraged writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, what happened after high school? After high school, I um. um plan was always you know my parents parents always encouraged me to go to college and Mm -hmm. that's that was my you know that's what I wanted to do so I moved to I was 18 moved to Maryland um now why to Maryland because I have some family there Mm -hmm. and I uh was more familiar with the area and there was the University of Maryland and I figured go to a school closer to, you know, my dad's side of the family, and uh, so that was the only school I applied to, and I got in, and I was there for a year, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of 
um, didn't really know what I wanted to do, what I wanted to study, and it was kind of really a huge difference for me coming from the small town I grew up in to a thirty thousand student campus, mm-hmm. and uh, challenged me in many different ways. Yeah. Can you describe those challenges? I think a lot. Of, you know, it was it was a lot of them were. Um, so they were kind of spiritual challenges because mm-hmm. you have this idea of the world when you when you grow up, you know, and you're in many ways I was sheltered, you know, and I came here and I saw a lot of things that were different for me and um, like what? Just the you know way people interact the. You know what people do for fun, especially the students. And uh, how was the interaction different? I guess I was just coming from a very uh, different place, mm-hmm. and I don't think people—I was people—understood where I was coming from. You know, this here's this white kid coming from Cameroon, and I guess you had regularly visited the U.S. to visit your grandparents. Yeah, that is correct. Uh-huh. So you had sort of gotten a flavor of what American culture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't a total surprise for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um but it was just I think I think most children kind of go through this when, when they leave home. It's just you you a lot of the ways that you thought are challenged and you have to find your own path mm-hmm. and that was my struggle was mm. I was trying to find my own path and I heard different you know there were, I still heard different voices in my head mm-hmm. and and a huge part was I wasn't um, fulfilled in what I was studying mm-hmm. and which was which at the time was um, engineering mm-hmm. and I realized that was just a huge... It was just a mistake doing that because I'm not really... I'm more artistically inclined mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than scientifically. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so after a year, I decided to take a break and I worked at a restaurant for almost two years in um, Alexandria, which is on the outskirts of D.C. Mm-hmm. And then I... After two years, I had the opportunity to come here to Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. I lived with you mm-hmm. <laughs> for two years, and mm-hmm. and then I really got a sense of things here. Like I, I really got, um, I really found what I wanted to do, living here. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could explain a little bit what your spiritual journey was from being in Baminda, Cameroon, coming to the University of Maryland, then taking that two years off to work, and then coming up here. What was, from a spiritual point of view, what was going on with you? I think for a few years I was disillusioned with religion. Mm -hmm. And... um, There were things I saw in religion that that I felt were hypocrisies. Mm-hmm. 
And for me, it was, it dis- I had to distance myself from it. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, I guess I questioned a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, I took a step back. It wasn't that I disbelieved in everything. It was mm-hmm. just by taking a step back and I, I, I began to read a lot more and question more and, Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so, what were some of the questions that you were starting to ask about religion that made you mm. step back or think twice about it? You know, in many ways, it, it wasn't really an active. I wasn't conscious of mm-hmm. of many of these things that were occurring within me. Mm-hmm. They they kind of just happened, and I wasn't. I was just reacting to everything. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. At the time, I wasn't thinking to myself that, you know, I'm going to take this time off mm-hmm. and be by myself and all mm-hmm. this. It was just, um, it just kind of happened the way it, it did. And mm-hmm. and then I got it, I, you know, I started working and uh, hanging out with a different crowd than I used to hang out with before. And mm-hmm. Okay, another thing was, uh, with my cultural background, uh, drugs was never uh, talked about mm-hmm. because it was never an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never it, well, culturally. It's not a challenge, you know. It, it's not like it's chil- not children are doing it at school or they're not. Know, they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not. So gr- drugs weren't pre- prevalent in Bamenda. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when I came here, I didn't really understand. You know, I I knew that drugs were bad mm-hmm. you know insti- like instinctually right but I uh, did not so this is the first uh, time you were exposed to it yeah, yeah. so <clears throat> at the University of Maryland you were and then uh, yeah you were exposed to drugs that weren't the whole yeah. the whole thing was not even present in right Bamenda. right so I saw a friend smoking mm. a joint and I didn't really uh it was it was that a cigarette? I I didn't really understand it. So, mm-hmm. and then there was um, then I got to a point where I was like, well, why is it so wrong to do it? Mm-hmm. And why, um, why is it so wrong to drink? Mm-hmm. And I was curious, mm-hmm. so I did. Mm-hmm. And then I, then when I um was working at the restaurant, you know, every, most you know the restaurant has its own culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people smoke pot, and uh, I, I started. I get, I got more into that. Mm-hmm. I would uh, go to work, and then come home, mm-hmm. some smoke pot, mm-hmm. go to work, mm-hmm. and this went on for a while. And uh, then one night, I don't know. It just I have no understanding why, or it just one night. Um, in 2000, 2002, uh, I, was, I had been working at the restaurant for over a year, and I think I had smoked pot earlier that evening, mm-hmm. and for some reason I felt really bad, and I felt like my life was going nowhere, and. Um, and I, I broke down that night just mm-hmm. by myself, just mm-hmm. being alone. And I was like, this, you know, this is really stupid. What am I doing? And I felt like 
I could do a lot, a whole lot better, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that was just like a crucial, that was like one of the moments in my life that... Mm. Uh, a crossroads. Right, yeah. And after that day, it was, I, it was easy for me to, I just began to disconnect myself from from the drugs and uh, alcohol and and then it was uh, then the period of then I w- began to read more about the Baha'i faith and because I felt like that was missing in my life mm-hmm. the spirituality was missing mm-hmm. and to me the Baha'i faith encompasses all religions mm-hmm. And so if there was a religion to turn to for me, it was the Baha'i faith because it still allowed me to be in love with Christianity and Islam and all these different religions. Mm. And so, yeah, so I began to read more and, yeah. And then what happened after that? And then, um, then shortly after it was, uh, for Baha'is, it was a period of the fast, and I hadn't fasted in a few years. Why don't you explain the the fast period so people know okay. what 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 you the mean? fast is? Uh, okay, it's a it's a period in the Baha'i uh, year where Baha'is um, uh, fast and they go without food or drink between sunrise and sunset for nineteen days. And uh, what time of year is it? It starts in March. It it all it takes place in March, March second, and um, goes for nineteen days. And um, the last day is the first day of spring, March twenty first. And uh, yeah, during that period of time, you um, you try to focus on the spiritual aspect of life, and not so much the material. And the purpose is to draw closer to your creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened at this particular Oh, uh, okay. And, and uh, so I, you know, I just had the, the, the desire to fast. And, and you hadn't done it for a couple yeah, of years. And mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I did that. And um, it was, for me, maybe it was, I think it was, it was a way I could maybe prove my... It was something I could actively do in pursuit of my spiritual growth, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And and after that, it was, you know, I had that... Later this that year, I had the opportunity to come here and live with you. Now, how did that opportunity arise? I mean, what were the circumstances leading up to that? Uh, I was really getting tired of working where I was and I felt it was a dead end and I wasn't um, you know I wanted to continue with school and uh, it wasn't really feasible it wasn't it it wasn't um, very convenient for me in that setting it was kind of like I also wanted to grow spiritually and that environment was not conducive to my spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. It was like 
it was like I could do all these things, but I was still, I wouldn't say I was like on my feet yet, you know? Mm -hmm. And for some reason I was drawn to come here mm -hmm. and drawn to Jackie mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. And this is your aunt. Yeah. Your, yes. Yeah. And, uh, the opportunity arose that, or Jackie said, well, why don't you come up here and live mm -hmm. with us? And, and for, you know, something inside me just went with it and mm. I quit my job and I quit. Uh, yeah. And I had to find someone to replace or I, I had signed a lease. Mm. And uh, so I asked my roommate, he was making, he was willing to have me go and he would pay the full rent. And so that wasn't a huge issue. So, yeah. So it kind of everything fell into place and I, came up here mm -hmm. and was here for two years. So what was it like coming here? Uh, different in many ways. Because this is, you live, you know, you have a bigger family than mm. I had experienced. You, and yeah, you basically didn't have family when down there. Oh, right, right. So it was like I was living on my own for a while and then I came here and I was part of a family. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess part of it is is that before, you know, you could do whatever you wanted. You know, you're living on your own. Mm -hmm. But here you have, it's more structured. You know, mm -hmm. you can't just do anything you want to. Mm. And and that was a challenge in a way mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. So what did you do when you got here? I uh, tried to look for work and... Mm. I became closer with the family mm. a whole lot mm. during this time. And I think it was also challenging for Jackie having me mm -hmm. because I I think I, I put myself at a emotional distance between people. Mm. And I later realized that I have this quality of uh, judging people. Mm. And uh, I came up with it came up in a conversation between me and uh, one of Jackie's friends, and I had met him at this um, at uh, Greenacre High School, and I just had one conversation with him, and towards the end of the conversation, he to he told me something that really shook me, mm. and he said uh, he need to give people a break, mm. and I get and this I guess this was a quality I never. Knew I I had, you know, it was mm. quality of um, putting people putting other people down in a way, mm -hmm. and looking down at people. Mm -hmm. So that kind of brought attention to my own character, mm. and that I actively needed to change who I was for the better, mm. Mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah, and, I, and through my relationship with uh, your family, mm -hmm. it really, because your family is really open about things, mm -hmm. so it really um, encouraged me to be open about who I was. And, uh, and in that way of analyzing one's character and and trying to make it better, it was really a... Uh, growing experience for me mm -hmm. being here. And what about your education? What what 
Oh, I went to UMass for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would take night classes, and and uh, was when I was taking night classes, I had a, I was hit by a car, um, one night when walking home, and uh, that was another uh, uh, crossroads in my life, the getting hit by a car. Um, I had never really gotten into an ac- accident of that uh, seriousness. What what exactly happened? I was walking home. It was uh, after dark. I was walking home from class on Spruce Hill, and a car was coming uh, towards towards me, mm-hmm. and. And I don't really recall what happened. I, I remember the car being in the distance, and and it's almost like the next thing I remember is being flung over, flung to the side of the road, and I felt suspended in midair for a while. And then he, he the boy who hit me, ran out of his car and. He was really nervous, and yeah. Then I went. I was in the hospital. I had surgery, and and then I was. The reason why I was really, I guess, it became one of those moments in my life was that I was I was stuck in bed for maybe four months with a broken leg, and uh, prior to that, I really d- didn't really know what to pursue, and with a you know as far as education goes and I felt like I was just going along with this major which was I was a business major and I didn't really have passion for it or anything and then for some reason like when I was in bed like one one day it just hit me you know I really care about how the world works I care about the state of the world why don't I study something that will have me gain a better understanding of this so like international development came to mind and uh, then I decided I was going to apply to to a lot of schools that you know had you know had this um, major and for me it was I felt like I could at that point I felt like I could do anything Mm. because being incapacitated incapacitated for a while you you know you long to do so many things and for me I felt like I could I could do anything you know it's like once I could walk I'm, I'm just going I made a whole list of things I wanted to do and, and one of them was to um, to pursue this mm. career so mm-hmm. so I applied to a bunch of schools and I got rejected by most schools <laughs> <laughs> and then I I uh, found I found this school in North Carolina that offers international studies and they they didn't have a deadline for applying so I applied and and they accepted me and so I moved to North Carolina and I've been there for two years what school was that? Uh, University of North Carolina in Greensboro Mm -hmm. which is a small city yeah so then you moved down to Greensboro yes I did so how long were you at uh, University of North Carolina Greensboro. For I've been there for two years, mm-hmm. and I'm graduating in December. Mm-hmm. So, what was it like there? 
Oh, very different. Very, I, I mean, different from the culture in in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. I feel I mean, it feels like in this area, um, there is there is a backlash against religion, mm. and uh, but in the South, in North Carolina, it's you know you could walk out of the student union at night and you'd see. 50 kids sitting out on the lawn with their Bibles open, you know, studying it, you know, so, mm. which uh, you don't, you would never see that at here in, at UMass, you know, it's just not part of the, you know, so anyway, so I lived in this, it was like a renovated hotel, and one of the interesting things is in the lobby of the hotel, they have a a huge list of churches, and it gives you the option of, you know, it gives student, people who live there the option of, well, which church do I want to go to? So I thought that's interesting. That's mm -hmm. also another difference in culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've been studying there for two years? Two years. In what field again? W and field of political science and international studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you had a special experience this past summer. Uh, yeah, I had... Uh, well, earlier this year, I had this burning desire to to do some to travel to to go to a foreign country and and do some kind of service because my my education is geared towards international service, mm -hmm. and uh, so I, I looked at different orga organizations and I found this small organization called uh, Orion Aid Orion Aid Foundation, and it's a Baha'i-inspired, student-run organization that uh, does work around the world. But one of the things they do is they get young people to go to Rwanda. And uh, as like one of the purposes of the Baha'i faith is to break down barriers between people because we have this fundamental belief that humanity is one. And uh, so in this process of breaking down barrier barriers between people, uh, it inc it gets youth to go to Rwanda and and spend two months with the people there. You know, we travel around to the villages and uh, spend a few nights, play with the children, and and build unity mm -hmm. because we the group feels the organization feels that if the group can be truly unified going in, and it's a pretty diverse group of people going into this country. That we, by showing them that we we can be from all over the world and we can still be unified, mm -hmm. and we still care about you, the Rwandans. Mm -hmm. We came, you know. It's like who would spend three thousand dollars to go to a village in Rwanda just to spend time with you? You know, it's it, you know. And they, I like, I was in one village and they asked us like, well, how much money did you spend to come here? Really? And we. Because it's more money than they would ever own have in their whole life, and we didn't. It was like if we answered that, they would be totally astounded. And we, but we did, and they were they were astounded. It was just, I guess they felt really. It was they felt really. You could see that they felt really grateful for what we did. Mm. And the background of the country is interesting. Uh, I think as most people know now is that uh, the country went through a tremendous war and genocide in 94 
that saw over a million people killed in a very, very short time. And so most fa- most families, Ru- most fa- Rwandese families have experienced death of some kind. Mm-hmm. And it's, the atrocities are, it's just, it just really bad what happened, how man became so inhumane to mm-hmm. each other. And so this was this is a country that's uh trying to recover. And I guess if if there is anywhere to go then to help, you know, this this would be it, right? Mm-hmm. I feel. Mm-hmm. From what you've learned, how did the genocide begin start in the first place? From what I understand, uh well the conf- you know, this conflict goes back for many many years. And from what I understand it goes back to colonialism and uh, what you know when the Europeans came to the re- to the area they found this kingdom of people that spoke one language but kind of looked different um, there were the the differences within this group of people was was that some people were cattle herders and some people were you know they farmed so the cattle herders survived on protein mostly from their cattle and so they were generally physically larger and bigger than um than the farmers so when the Europeans came they they kind of assumed that these are two different ethnic groups you know one is larger than the other and so they they began to um classify people and you know for 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 the rwanda for the rwandans you know the the tutsis were the cattle herders and the hutus were the farmers that was the difference so they favored the europeans favored the the tutsis which were the you know they were the cattle herders and for many years they kept the tutsis in control of things and and then the hutu had this the hutus had this resentment against you know the tutsis now because there were crea- it created ethnic divisions greater ethnic divisions than before and so when the europeans left um the hutus took that opportunity to retaliate you know for for their you know their majority and they were, they were the underdog so for many years they you know they had this hatred towards the tutsis and um they took over you know they took over the country and they would sporadically have attacks on tutsi you know on the tutsis and then what really sparked the genocide in 94 was the president's plane was shot down and the president was hutu and they blamed the hutus blamed it on the tutsis and they said the Tutsis are after us. You know, they they had this mass propaganda on the radio that the Tutsis are out to you know take over the country and and all this. But no one really knows who shot the plane down. So they, with mass propaganda, they they uh, really <clears throat> instigated people to you know to to kill the the, the Tutsi minor the Tutsi minority. 
And, you know, they would say things like, oh, the Tutsis are cockroaches, really dehumanizing people, you know, that they no longer were seen as people, but as animals, you know, as vicious creatures that were going to take over their lives. And most of the country is not really that educated as far as, um, as far as, like, school goes. So a lot of people, you know, they're highly influenced by what the radio tells them and their worldview is pretty limited. They don't have access to newspapers. They didn't have that access to newspapers. And so, when, you know, I can see how people can really be toyed in that way. And they were. And it wasn't like villages would it, would travel to attack another village. It was more like neighbors killing neighbors. Mm. And there were even there were families that were both Hutu and Tutsi and they would force the Hutu husband to kill his Tutsi wife or the children to kill their own mothers or fathers, you know. Mm. So it was really it's just horrendous. Mm. And you can this you can still see, you know, a lot of people my age that I interacted with had experienced a lot of this bloodshed and um, but things are moving you know they, one of the things they tell me when I was there is that um, please take back good stories of our country because they they feel really ashamed of what happened and a lot of them really don't understand how it happened how human beings could become like that and um but the, so the you know if you go to Rwanda now it's you you can't really it's not so obvious that there was this genocide because the country has really moved forward in many ways and uh but you do see pla- you know, billboards that say genocide never again and they, there are a lot of genocide memorials and um so and and now it's the government has done a lot to discourage people from identifying as being Hutu or Tutsi. In fact, if you go to Rwanda, don't, you should never ask anyone what their ethnic group is because they would... It's Now Now it's con- these words are considered taboo. And if you did, they would seriously be offended. Mm. And just to show you like how, how serious um, the impact is on people, it's like... You know, someone might ask you, well, how many brothers and sisters do you have? And I don't have any, so I, I said, I, I don't have any. And then I ask him, well, how many do you have? And he's the person is just quiet because he might have had six brothers and sisters and now there are only maybe two of them. And they just, you know, it just brings up a, a lot of memory. So... These are the little things that, you know, you just be very careful of what how you interact with people because mm. a lot of people have just faced tremendous challenges. Mm. So what does the future hold for you, Ramin? <laughs> well, um... You said you're graduating soon? I'm graduating soon, going to North Carolina to finish up my last semester. And uh, I have different things I would like to do. I'm... Uh, I like writing. I um I also I it's interesting what I study I during during school I don't really enjoy it 
as much. But then when I'm out of school, like I kind of look forward to going back to school to keep studying what I do, which is interesting. I don't really understand why that is. Um, but maybe uh, if I have something, if I could be more specific in my field of study, because my, my field right now is pretty broad. I would like to either continue something internationally related um, educationally mm-hmm. uh, or work for the UN mm-hmm. or uh, I'm also interested in photography mm-hmm. which is a recent discovery for me mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I'd like to pursue that as well mm-hmm. yeah. well it like, sounds like you got a lot of irons in the fire <laughs> <laughs> yeah I guess I do <laughs> well Ramin thank you very much this was a very interesting interview thank you thank you very much Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ramin Gillette, a 25-year-old Baha'i youth who grew up in the African country of Cameroon and is now completing his studies at the University of North Carolina. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
So ask me why am I such an optimist When it's more fashionable to be a pessimist From within 75% of what we read here in you Well, I used to have a friend named Minnie Rippleton Who used to always sing when she was living Like fine wine and like seeing the glass of life is half full and half empty I'm not saying sometimes life can be rough But never to the point of me saying I've had enough Long as my heart beats, I'm giving up That's why I say every day American, what do I see for tomorrow in the human plan? Is it possible for all people of the world to coexist? I say unity is only as big as our vision, and if it's now strive to expand beyond the horizon, but truly there's much guidance through the ills of society that stand in our way. So if the road is to harmony, be with the call. But if it's about discord, don't take the ride at all. Cause the world vision I see is the one we for everybody. Zion, O Carmel, 
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.